Welcome to Vino Week, episode 44. Welcome to Vino 101. I'm Bill. Hello, everybody. It's Al. We're ready to talk some wine, Bill. Yes, some more from the world. A lot going on. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot going on. Mostly rain. Yeah, uh, if if you live anywhere uh, where there's a newspaper or internet, you know that we have been inundated with rain here in Sonoma County, actually Northern California, and uh, we got, we had a, how do they say, we had a real gully washer. Yeah, yep, it it flooded the Russian River Valley, and many of the towns along the river. Did you uh, see the? Uh, did you see the video uh, of uh, somebody had a a drone that flew over? Did you see that? You know, I didn't see that. I'll have to go look for it. Oh, it's just amazing. Well, I went. I was up in that area. You know, that's kind of my zone. So I was up in that area. Well, we're in the area. <laughs> in the Russian River yeah, Valley. Yeah, but, but I know what you meant. Closer <laughs> to the river. So, um, but I drove uh, over, uh, I went 101 North going up to Geyserville, Cloverdale, that area. Uh, I believe it was, I want to say Wednesday morning. I have never seen the river that wide. Wow. And yeah. it looked to be just maybe, i say less than five feet, and it was going to go over the bridge that, that go the Hillsburg Bridge. Wow. But uh, obviously all the vineyards that are right along that were just you know they were severely impacted by the water and they were all just they're all underwater it was just one big big lake and uh here in sebastopol we had a horrible uh, horrific event um uh tied to that our laguna which is where it's kind of a watershed i call like a little dry lake bed if you will yeah it's just a big um, flat plain that's very low and water just stores there yeah, nobody nobody ever really builds anything there because I mean it's it's floods, it just floods. water be just a, a matter of what degree. So um, our town, our lovely town of Sebastopol, uh, for a while at least, for a couple of days, maybe three days, I want to say, or at least for a couple of days, there was really only one way in and one way out. Yep. Um, as uh, the little plane, the, the road that runs from um, our area going into Santa Rosa Guerneville Road, that was even underwater. Yeah. So there was no way to. Um, it was a good time to telecommute if you could. Yeah, for sure. But uh, Sebastopol hits, sits up on a little hill, but we were um, our area, our newly uh, constructed Barlow, our beloved Barlow, was um, inundated with water, and I tell you. I've gone down there. I in, I enjoy that area. I think it's just a wonderfully developed area. And having lived in this area for so long, I had, I myself didn't even think, well, you know, this is a floodplain. I wonder what they have in mind to do this. And as you drive into Sebastopol, you see the you see all of the buildings that are built in that area. They're built on um, man-made berms of dirt. Yeah, they're all raised. And for whatever reason, they didn't do that for the Barlow Center. So everything around it is raised, but the Barlow was not. So uh, unfortunately, um, uh, I drove by there this morning. Actually, everything's uh, everything from uh, Taylor Farms, uh, the coffee shop, everything uh, 
going back to the Laguna is shut down. It's so closed, yeah. Well, the it was interesting. I was the um, so that place is an old apple processing facility. So the cost to actually put everything up on a berm um, to refinish the buildings and build a few new ones would have cost too much money. So they did get a permit from the city because they had built a barrier system to put in along um, Morris Street and part of 12 so that if there was a flood, it would not flood the Barlow. They did not install that system when the flood came this time. Um, no one knows why. Um, now, the owner of that, developer of that, is a gentleman named Barney Aldridge. And um, there's been some articles in the Press Democrat, our local paper, about the tenants' frustration with the fact that, the, and the city's frustration with the fact, the city managers actually quoted Larry McLaughlin in that article, about how disappointed they were that the barrier system didn't come up, and in fact those businesses did get flooded. So I think there's going to, my personal opinion, it's my opinion, um, nothing else, that uh, there's going to be some legal action with the businesses there and Barney Aldridge, because um, that should not have happened. The barrier system actually has been in place. I think it took 12 people 50 hours to put in. That's the, the stats they have on that, and they just didn't do it. And I don't know why, with the amount of rain that we had, I would think that they would, um, you know, have put it up. And it was on the property management. It was on the Barlow's management um, to get that put in during the storm. So, I, you know, I don't know how fast those businesses recovered. I heard the Fern Bar has been open. I heard Taylor Lane is open as well. And I believe Wood 4 is open. So there are some businesses open if you come up to town right now. But uh, I don't know about Community Market and the Goat and all of the restaurants that are sort of behind that. So the Farmer's Wife, the Nectary... Um, Kosho ice cream um, Two Dog Night I think is the name of the ice cream store Barrio um, The Bakery um, So it's going to be really interesting to see what happens But they uh, It's a shame they didn't put their They had a system to deal with it and they didn't use it Yeah I, um, I shot you a photo of the Barlow In the 1964 flood So you could see that that area where it's built is I mean this is not uncommon Right I uh, mean I remember it flooding in It flooded in um, 86 It flooded in uh, 97 Yeah uh, I believe it flooded in 2005 The reason I know this is because Every time it floods to that degree that Chevron station that's on the approaches you come into town right on 12 is always underwater. Yep. And that's the key determinator. It's like, well, if the Chevron station is out, then, you know, everything in that area is out. <laughs> out. You know? Yeah. I, uh, so I got a picture. I remember it in 05. So we came in 03. So I remember the, the one in 05. And then I got a picture on Thursday with uh, my son down in the bar. He was in the Barlow. He was standing on the sidewalk, sort of looking into the Barlow, kind of from where Sebastopol Station is, so across the street from Barlow. And I text him back. I'm like, go get the kayak and kayak around down there. Because, you know, you live here and you can say you kayak down the street. Yeah, he yeah. could have kayaked across. Nothing? He could have kayaked across the twelve bridge all the way over to the gas station and done a loop. 
He didn't do it, but uh, had I been home, I would have taken it out. Um, but I, yeah, hope I, all of those... I agree with you that. Yeah, go ahead. I, I agree with you that there's definitely going to be um, uh, some litigation, um, unfortunately. Um, I mean, some of those businesses have just opened up. And uh, I mean, some of these people may not have even. I mean, it's one of those things I was trying to think if I had opened up something down there, would I have really, I probably just oh. knowing the area, I would have said, eh, I don't know. But, you know, if they say they've got a system in place, like you say, and it just wasn't implemented, then, uh, yeah, boy, that definitely is, um, there's going to be a lot of finger pointing going on. Yeah, I don't, it's sort of baffling to me. Uh, so I was part of the city council and a city council committee when the Barlow was going through its approval. And I remember this barrier um, because the city was concerned about flooding and they were concerned about, you know, they didn't really, they had to mitigate the um, known flooding that would, that would occur. And the, the mitigation was this barrier. So I just don't, it doesn't make any sense to me why it wasn't, wasn't deployed. And what's worse is one of the places that got, that was underwater, or at least some port of water, was a grocery store, was community market. So, you know, super thin margins, ton of stock. I mean, they're, you know, super nice to have that place in the Barlow. You know, it's those kind of places that, you know, often can't, you know, make it. And, you know, if I, I assume if you run a restaurant, you know, you've got to be open. You just need that cash flow. Um, all of these oh, it's retail, devastating. You know, all these retail places need that. Like, there are just days where, you know, even a couple of customers can make the difference between whether or not you're making it just because you need a cash flow. I mean, I just don't – I feel bad for all those people. Well, it's, it's devastating, and it's not the same, you know, to draw a distinction. It's not the same as people that live, you know, closer to the river, uh, people that live um, in, the, in the lower part of the river that are – I mean, this is for some of these people. It's a every other year event. Yeah. They're accustomed to it. That's true. They're prepared. That's true. So this is a this is a totally different thing. You're, you know, this this is not an area that really floods with a great amount of frequency, yeah. but it does over. I say over the last fifty years, it's flooded at least four or five times. Yeah, so it's, it's like, like a you know, once a decade, once a ten every ten year kind of event thing. And if you think about it, it flooded in 05, and here we are in 19, you know, and got a, you know, the Russian River got within, I think, five feet of its highest um, uh, crest ever. I think the highest crest is 49 and a half feet, and it got to 44, it crested at 44 something on Thursday night. So, like, you know, it was a lot of rain, and we have more rain on the way. They, they have now labeled these storms atmospheric rivers. You know, we used to get them all the time, and now they're atmospheric rivers. Okay. Um, yeah, that's you know, a little... You know, okay. You know, hey, it's science, right? So we're learning stuff that we didn't know before. That's, you know, that's totally fine. Um, but, um, you know, we have some more of these on the way, and the ground's already... The thing about California is the soil here, it just takes a long time for it to reabsorb the water that... that um, you know, that's, you know, that's generated and it just kind of sits. And the other thing that's, that's tricky here is, you know, fires. So there's land that doesn't have any, 
you know, plants on it. And when it rains, that stuff just turns into mud and, and just washes, it just washes away. And that causes a whole host of other problems. Um, a lot of the Russian river, while they do flood more often, in, in this case, in the Russian river valley, um, right along the river, there were a lot of, um, I read a lot more, it seemed like there were more mudslides. You know, a lot of roads are out for mudslides, trees falling over. Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a long cleanup, I think. Yeah, apparently so. It's un unfortunate. But we'll weather the storm. I mean, people are pretty resilient in this area. Um, the vines themselves, just for our, our listeners, the grapevines are like, ah, whatever. They're, yeah, they're, they're, dormant. they're asleep. Yep, they're dormant. So, um, yeah, you can have you can have grapevines uh, flooded out for days and days and days, and it's not a re really big deal. Um, I, I don't think you want them standing in water for maybe you know more than a couple of weeks. Maybe maybe uh, you could have some problems at that point. But for the most part, <laughs> turn the into vines, aquaculture. They're really not affected. By yeah, <laughs> we're gonna make, we're gonna grow grapes in water. Um, literally, the big thing that that does have an impact on the vintners though is with all of this rain and uh it looks like uh the pineapple express as they've uh dubbed it will continue um we've got rain scheduled all this week it's getting about the time when because it's a little warmer now it's not as cold as it was it's the vines are starting to think maybe it's time to wake up yeah and the problem with that is there's still a lot of budwood out there or, or vines that have not been uh pruned yet and you know Typically, the way the pruning's done, I sent I sent um, I was in Alexander Valley, so I put a couple pictures on uh, Twitter uh, to show people uh, how it's done. These days, a lot of uh, the pruning is done by man and machine. And what I mean by that is that the machines go out and they cut off the excess to where because when you're out there pruning. These canes can be two, they can be three feet long. So when you cut one off, you got to pull it out and you have to pull it through the trellising. And it's, it's just a lot of extra work for the, for, the, for the pruner. So they have the machines go through the vineyard and do a pre-cut and cuts everything down to maybe like six inches. The machine obviously can't do any more than that because at this point where you want, you want to leave a certain amount of buds on each, on each um, piece. So you got to have somebody who is, is, is experienced to do that. The problem is with the ground so saturated, you can't get a tractor in to do the pre-cut. So everyone's under the gun now as this rain continues to it's like they got to get the pruning done. And we don't have, you know, there's not that many people to get it done to do it the old style way. We've kind of gone into the mechanization where people drive the tractors through, do the pre-cut, and then they send in a crew to do the final trimming. So that's a problem for farmers because it's getting close to that, that bud break time, and you want to get that pruning done before uh, the vine starts waking up. Yeah, you really want it. Yep. Yep. And there's a reason every time you go by, um, if you've never seen this, there's a reason the vineyards always look sort of perfect, neat, and trimmed. <laughs> It's because they're doing this work. They're con they're they're I wouldn't say constantly, but they're very consciously m manipulating the plant, trimming it, pruning it, um, to get the fruit that they want, or at least try to manipulate the 
plant to try to get the fruit that they want. And it's very important in terms of making sure the plant's trimmed and it doesn't have too much canopy um, or has the right amount of canopy to grow. Um, it's a tricky thing. And yeah, the fields get sad. I, I remember for the first time I came to California and I saw all these tractors with tracks on them, like tank tracks. And I was mm -hmm. like, what, what, what? You know, I'm used to seeing tractors with tractor tires on them. But a lot of it is because the field is wet um, or the ground is so sticky that it's hard to get traction with tires, so they use tracks. And it's in the places like in this, you know, river valleys or these, you know, these plains that flood like this where they, they, you know, they have to use that type of equipment. But yeah, it, you know, you definitely see these machines making the, um, you know, making inroads in terms of the mechanization of the, of the labor. Um, it's also really fascinating if you ever get to watch the pruners go through and prune because they're so fast at what they do. Um, yeah. You know, a professional crew can, you know, trim a vineyard very a lot quicker than you think. And they're so experienced to being able to see and know what they have to trim. It's um, it's like, how hard can it be? It's like, it's one of those things, you, at least for me, I think about it. I'm like, well, I can be that hard. They go out there doing it. It's like, you know, somebody's finished like five or six rows and you're still standing on the edge of your first one. <laughs> you know, yeah, oh, should I, should I trim this or not? <laughs> they're like, why, why are you standing here? Anyway. That's what happened to me. I, I probably said that on a, a previous <laughs> podcast, but my one experience with pruning was—I mean, was decades ago. But I was a—you know—I was a youngster, yep. and it was a crew of five of us out there, and um, it was that same thing, man. It's like we all start on a row, and I'm looking. The guy's already down to the other end. Exactly. Looking <laughs> back at me. Exactly. And they're like, "That's like no." Yeah. You know, I'd like to eat tonight. You know, can you hurry it up? But it it is good thing um, I didn't know Spanish. Good thing I didn't know Spanish because I know they were all like, "Man, this well, greenhorn." Exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's very true. That's very true. But uh, all the best to those out there that have, uh, you know, suffered from the impact of the flooding. Um, it's a it's a mess to clean up. Um, it's hell on your business and it's just a big disruption uh, and the best thing all it of us is. can do is when they're open go patronize them go buy stuff from them yeah you know I, I, I saw that uh, Costa Brown Winery was okay and they're right up against the Laguna there too Yeah. you know the people that have been in that area that flood for a while have got it down like the community center they know exactly what to do oh it's raining so they just they start pick up their floors yep. move all their stuff to higher ground they got it down yep sandbagging so apparently the people at Costa Brown they kind of had the same thing they kind of had planned ahead yep. and I think they had their own system in place so they really suffered minimal I mean, I don't think they hardly got any water in the winery because they they were they were prepared. Yeah. I really wonder the businesses that are right on the edge by the Laguna, so the Goat, and then there's a bunch of I think Flowers Winery might be down there. Um, I think there's a clothing shop down there. It's just right on when you turn off of Morris Street. Um, those were all severely impacted. Those things had to be just be. I mean, they had to have you know four or five feet of water or higher. Because it, yeah. I mean the the goat is even those businesses are even lower than community market, so it's almost like a ladder down as you're going from the western part of 
Sevastopol into the into east. So it kind of comes off a hill, it goes down into the Laguna, and then you go back, um, you know, up to higher ground as you get into Santa Rosa. It's, yeah, that 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 little boutique shop was ruined, and you know, a lot of other, you know, all of that. That's just awful. So, like you say, I just hope the best for for all those people. I hope they can get get back and yeah. Uh, I know, hope everybody's got uh, good insurance. Yeah, good insurance, back in action, because um, it was really it. I it really. It's one of those things, you know. I mean, would you have purchased if you own a business, though? Honestly, but would you have purchased flood insurance, which is not cheap? I mean, would you have purchased flood insurance knowing that the owners? I mean, this is one of the things when you're signing your lease. They say, you know, we we know we're in an area that could flood. You know, we've got these bears. We've had it all set up. We know exactly what we're doing. I mean, I I may have been disinclined to to purchase yeah, flood insurance. I don't. It's hard to make that call without being there. I I think the um, you know, it, it that question for me would all come down to how much it cost. Yeah. yeah. You know, it it would all come down. It would it would come down to how much it would cost and how much I would. Uh, what the coverage look like you know because often it's like earthquake insurance in california you pay a significant amount of money and if you run it the numbers for decades or more it doesn't start to pencil out because you got a 30 percent deductible and home values around here uh you know when a big catastrophe comes what they're looking at two what 250 a square foot for building I heard as much yeah. as four hundred dollars after the fire, man. That doesn't pencil out after a while, um, even at that cost. Um, so it's the same thing with flood insurance. It's like, well, I'm only going to get thirty percent of my stuff back, and if you have a boutique where you're hand making stuff, you can't replace it. Like that's that's gone. So like, I'm getting thirty cents on the dollar back, or seventy cents on the dollar. I don't know. I think it's all going to come down to the math and how much and you know how much it costs and how much we get back you would like to think that living in a in a flood zone like that you would have some type of coverage you would almost have to even with that barrier yeah you know i mean if you, if it was a home it would be mandatory you yeah. wouldn't have a choice yeah so yep. i mean i um when uh, one of the first places i lived in um was over um another little laguna but it's going out towards uh going out 12 going out towards the coast as you before you go up the hill you go marty's top of the hill and you go down there's that little dip that yeah. area is prone to a lot of water also we lived in some condos there and oh we, yeah it was mandated just flood yeah. insurance for that area yep i know exactly yeah i know what you're talking about so Sure. Well, let's uh, let's get off with the flood stuff and uh, yeah, we can talk about that all day. It's like a yeah. couple of locals. Well, obviously, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you can tell that uh, it's it's a it's it's a hot topic for Bill and I. But I mean, why wouldn't it be? It's, yeah, a, it's our local. home. Uh, it's our home turf, and it's it's our neighbors and our, our friends that are impacted. Yeah, by this, so. yeah. Um, but let's. Uh, uh, you want to? You want to? Want to talk about? talk a little bit more law and litigation yeah i was just uh, let's talk about <laughs> let's talk about oregon or so um you got a couple of articles here uh, about um oregon the state of oregon is making a drive to i don't know get control over th their branding 
I mean, that's kind of what it's about. So they're passing laws to make it very difficult if you use Oregon grapes not to label um, your your product with the information that it comes, it's either made in or comes from product from the state of Oregon. Um, and it looks like they're trying to do it pretty, like, it's, I'm you know, I there's a lot of legal ease in the article you sent, but it's... Um, it seems like they're making to make it really tough, and part of this all comes from Joe Wagner, and um, I'm sure there are others who are trucking, you know, la- labeling things Willamette Valley when they're not really all from L- Willamette Valley. So they're saying it's misleading, um, all the way to you know, made in Oregon, and it's actually you know, it's made in it's made in California, and then trucked back and bottled in Oregon. So you know, it's made in Oregon. I, that's what I see is a lot going on here. What's your take there, Al? Yeah, you know, I think obviously they're balking at. Well, let me put it this way: Joe Wagner of um, was not consulted uh, about this legislation. They didn't have him on the committee when they were drafting it. No. Would you say that's safe to say? Yes, that's good. That's good. That's true. Um, yeah. I mean, his whole practice and what he's doing is I don't really have a problem with it, but they really have a problem with yeah, it. They... And a lot of this stems back from last year when uh, Mr. Wagner decided to refuse uh, grapes that growers had a contract with them. They'd grown these grapes. They'd done all the things that they're supposed to do according to the contract. And they bring the grapes to his winery. He says, "I'm not taking them because they're smoke tainted." This all really, this the nexus of this is that. And uh, you know, I mean, farmers they work hard. They don't like being told that you're not going to accept their product after they've worked all year to grow it for you. <laughs> so this, this is their way of of uh, ensuring that that doesn't happen again. Because one of the main provisions. Uh, or the main proposals in this uh, this new legislation is that it's as you said it's going to directly impact wineries that are located in other states and they source grapes or juice from Oregon they take it to a different state and process it it's going to really really change the way and it's going to severely restrict the way that that's done and the way the labeling process goes so um, uh I think they're just going to ramrod it through, um, and uh, unfortunately, uh, the the people uh, that are doing that, <laughs> I mean, they use some really interesting terms in here. A wine is deceptively labeled or packaged as to origin in. If the wine is fully finished in Oregon and packaged outside of Oregon, you know, they're they're saying essentially in this legislation that that is deceptive de- deceptive labeling. I don't really, I think they're going a little bit too far. And I think almost that they need, it's almost like they need a a liaison between the two states to kind of iron it out. Because if I'm a grower and I'm growing grapes, the last thing I would want to do is literally bite the hand that feeds me, which, and the hand that feeds me is the vintner, the guy that's buying my grapes. Yep. I don't want to get him all riled up. He'll buy grapes somewhere else. So, I mean, we're, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship. I'm growing the grapes. You're making the wine. We're buddies. And that's the way it should be. And that's really what you want. 
and this legislation is doing nothing to to um, to to make that a smooth uh, a smooth way of doing business. It makes the it well. So you know, if you think if you think back to some of the things that we've covered, there are big California wine companies that have moved into Oregon because of the product, um, because of the you know the the raw materials they can get, the grapes they can get. Plus, you know, it's good for business. It's employing people. All of this legislation will turn, effectively turn the volume down on all of that. You're making it harder to operate in Oregon. It's it's going to negatively impact people who are trying to make things grow. Now, I'm not talking about the business grow, not the, the vines. Um, you know, this type of legislation does not have the desired effect that I think they, you know, um, they want. Um, it would be better to put guidelines out and promote those guidelines to say, hey, if you make things in this region and in this valley and you make them here, you know, we have this association that has this designation. Um, we do that here in the Russian River. Um, our wine growers, you know, have done a good job marketing our Sonoma County and our wines and people know what to look for and it oftentimes because of the producers have gotten together they label their bottles in such a way now that's not true for every bottle and every winery but there's another approach is what i'm saying and trying to legislate that you just can't imagine the warts you're going to cause by trying to lock things down like this so right away you just read a bunch of language that's open to interpretation so that's who's that good for lawyers and lawsuits that's all it's good for and um and, and I'm sorry, never, Joe Wagner. Uh, hey, look, they're PO'd because Joe Wagner came in and has got a formula and is making a crap ton more money than they are. And he didn't want smoke tainted grapes. $320,000, yeah. $140,000. Yeah. He, he got those grapes and he clearly didn't meet his standards. So, you know, it happens. I hope you got insurance. <laughs> well, here's, here's the, the other part of the picture. So the vendors got together, the Rogue Valley Vendors Association <laughs> yes. got together, and they they tried to took solve those the problem. Painted grapes. They tried to make lemons lemonade out of lemons. Yeah. Right? So they took those grapes and they and they vinified them. They they, um, they spent all the money to actually um, vinify the wine, and now they have the wine bottled, uh, or at least the rosés are bottled now, and they want to sell the wine. And the name that they came up was Oregon Solidarity. Hey, you know, brothers in arms. We're all for that, right? Sure. The problem is Oops. that the trademark for solidarity has already been trademarked by a guy that makes some wine here in California. He's like, hey, that's my trademark. Exactly. So here we go. Another, you know, another Oregon, California clash. He's like, you know, hey, I, I really appreciate that you guys are doing this great thing, but you're, you're using my trademark name to sell your wine. How's that work out, Bill? Not very well. It's, um, you know, there is a point in time in your life where you keep trying to go down a path and things keep keep putting in your way. Maybe you want to go down yeah. another path. There might be an easier road. But, yeah, I think the... the um, you know, it's a tough situation. I empathize with the Vintners as well. Like, you know, here's somebody trading on, you know, they're trading on the Willamette Valley and their brand. And they, you know, they feel like they're not, you know, they're, somebody's leveraging that. And it's, one, it's not 
it's not authentic or you know not what they would can not what they want in terms of what they think um, it should come from their area and their vines and they've been you know the Willamette Valley I mean they've been coming up um, you know I see all the time people that go and visit there and wow I never knew Oregon had so many great wines so like, I see their side of the story but at the same time you got somebody who can supercharge your your brand and the branding of your area and just seems to be better if you can sit down and work something out as opposed to trying to legislate it all. I don't think anybody's going to end well, up with what they want there. Yeah, who's going to win in this? Okay, the Oregon vendors, they got together, they, they took all the rejected grapes, they made wine out of it. Hey, hip hip hooray. They're going to sell the wine. They're not trying to make money off the wine. They're just trying to make the growers whole. Yeah, trying to That's really costs. all they're doing. Yep. yep. And, you know, now they're in another... It's just you can't make this stuff up, man. No, it's so no. unbelievable. No, and the and the guy who has the solidarity brands, like you know, he's not. I mean, he's not pounding the table. He's just like, hey, this is like you know, this is my thing. I built my business on yeah. this, and evidently he sounds like a kind of quirky person. It's Justin Grace. Yeah, Wiring. yeah, he's, a, he's definitely. He'd fit right in in our neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> You know, he's making, and, and we say that because he has wines that are named, like, Solidarity, We Are Palestinia, or Solidarity, We yeah. Are Homeless. Um, and he makes a bottle of wine for 10 bucks, and the proceeds are support homeless charities. I mean, it's he's, that's very Peacetown, USA, um, Sebastopol yeah. kind of thinking. But, um, you know, you don't want to hurt that per, that guy either. No. <laughs> you know? It's kind of yeah, funny. It's guys. like you're complaining about Joe Wagner, and now here's somebody complaining about now you're doing what Joe Wagner's doing to you. You're now doing to somebody else. Yeah, it's it's, it's a really really crazy crazy world we live in. It, it's a mess. I think it. I think the world would be a lot better if we didn't have fires. This is all because of those darn fires in Oregon. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's true. It's true. But boy, I, I think that you know I, I I you know I didn't study that article with the legislation. It has a quotes from the proposed legislation. What I did read though is just like holy smokes, this is just really. Um, I mean, this could have a very chilling effect on the wine business in Oregon. Um, it, you know, it's like well, yeah, we'll operate in Oregon, but we're going to do everything, you know, production. Um, all of our business, we'll just move back to California because we thought Oregon was going to be great. I mean, didn't Jackson just buy? Jackson family just bought a huge facility by somewhere in Southern Oregon, like a year or two ago. Yeah, Jackson family. Yeah, Jackson family wines did it differently. Excuse me, I didn't mean to talk over you. No, that's good. Um, they they did it a little differently. Um, they bought they bought uh, vineyards, but they also bought a huge uh, facility. Uh, that wasn't a winemaking facility, and they turned it in. They turned it into a winemaking facility because I guess they, you know, they pushed the, um, they did all the um, the math and figured it'd be just better to process it right there. Um, but uh, that's the way that they handled it. And uh, I, you know, I mean, how can you complain about that? Except, I mean, you really can't complain about that. I don't think. Yeah, I don't like you said. You know, bringing jobs to the area, right? Um, but kind of to your point earlier, you know, will California retaliate legally? Um, you know, it could put it could put a 
a damper on businesses like that. Anyway, I mean, all that speculation and opinion, but it it um, it will be very interesting to see. I'm not a fan of you know this sort of specific type of law that's trying to regulate this thing. I just think the the growers themselves and the vintners themselves would be better off getting together and say, hey, we're going to have this designation. It means this. We want you to be a part of it. Um, you know, you're fine to take a portion of your wine and, and uh, you know, make it according to this, to our group. Um, as a, you know, and that's really kind of what this is all about. Somebody's having a dispute with another vintner, so they're trying to get politicians to solve the problem instead of sitting down and talking to each other. Yeah. And you get you getting politicians and lawyers involved. You know the horses out the barn now, yep. because you know you've got you've got these other people that are talking for you, and they might not actually be translating exactly what your intent and what you want done. So it just gets super convoluted. You know you got you got too many cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. And that's that's what's going on there. All of this kind of relates in a in a in a a very very easy to for me anyway easy to see way. Uh, of climate change, um, you know, and I suppose you could, you know, you have your people that say there is no climate change, and you have your people that say that there is climate change. Um, just having lived in this area, you know, I've lived in this area for too short of a time, a period, to say whether there's climate change. I can say that the weather has changed, and uh, it's significantly drier. And I can also say that. Uh, grape growers when they harvest has changed because um, when I first moved into this area I remember they started picking grapes uh, grape grape harvest was usually started around uh, the first second week of September you know up in Dry Creek Valley now uh, they're harvesting grapes they start harvesting grapes uh, the first second week of uh, August yeah. So there's been literally like a three, almost four week change over the past 20, 30 years. Um, there's an article that I sent you uh, about, about, did you see the article? About, it was kind of about climate change, but the one I want to talk about real quickly is in Australia, they're having these increasingly hot summers. Yeah. And um, it's gotten to the point where, Vintners now are looking to plant in higher areas because if you if you plant a little further up, you know, in a higher altitude vineyard, um, the heat is uh, it, there's a little less heat. And uh, not only are they looking to plant in different areas, but they're also suffering the impact of having less grapes because what happens is after a while, if if, if the area where you're growing your vines is too hot. Basically, the grapes turn into raisins and fall off the vines. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what that article is saying. It's like, it's so hot that, you know, so the, fir the first step in, in a situation like this is, wow, we're going to get, you know, the dense, the, the sugar will be more concentrated in the grapes and will have a more complex um, and interesting wine. We'll make less, but it will be a better, potentially better quality and more interesting. So everything will be good. Well, now they've just gone past that where it's, you know, the plants are getting scorched and they just, they won't produce anything, which is just, and in Australia, like you said, over the last cut, it seems like every year for the last five or six years is my memory. 
you've read about these you know extreme droughts in um, Australia coupled with fire bad fire yeah. it just seems to be my recollection um, you also posted an article about Europe where it's the opposite in terms of climate it was too too cool and too much rain and that affected the <clears throat> 14 and 13 vintages of their wine I think that um, I believe this is a, a known fact statistic is that the that the weather is getting more extreme there are more periods of extreme weather so you know days of atmospheric river that cause floods where we live you know drought or sorry cool and rain in Europe um, and you know not as good for you know production of of wine and of course the heat in Australia and it, it it's extreme it's not like wow it was hot for a month it was hot no it was hot for three months and it was you know hotter than it's ever been um, you know climate climate change and climate science is like everything else we have we're learning more than we did you know the previous years and there there is definitely you know we know there was an ice age and we know there was this you know there was a super warm time on the planet way back in its history and we're probably it's probably just a continual cycle and evolution through all of that and are humans having an impact yeah we're putting pavement down and burning up stuff in the ground sure there's got to be an effect and it's just common sense um but it 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 well you know i we've i've seen some studies in california where you know if the temperature and weather conditions continue to happen the trends continue to happen like they've happened the last 10 years you know northern california like in the trinity alps you know around redding um humboldt you know where the emerald triangle is now so humboldt county mendocino county and um um not lake county but uh um I can't remember the other county that makes up the Emerald Triangle. They're all going to be awesome, like Pinot regions. <laughs> yeah. You know, stuff's moving north, and if you study the agriculture here, that's kind of what happens. Stuff comes in the south, and then it moves north, and it keeps moving north until it goes offshore. Sebastopol used to be a big hop growing region. All that stuff isn't here anymore. That all moved into Oregon, and then eventually moved offshore. Stone fruit used to be big around here. It used to grow a lot of you know, apples and pears and um, peaches and those kind of things. They kind of migrated. There's still a lot of that in Lake County. You can drive around and see, you know, orchards, um, obviously Southern Oregon, but it is a mi migratory pattern almost for this type of stuff. Um, so it's interesting how the weather, you know, the weather's impact. And of course, you know, if you like an agricultural product like wine, that stuff matters, the weather and the climate. Well, there's a, I, I was really intrigued by this guy, uh, Ken Helm. He's the, uh, the wine director at Helm Wines, and they asked him about climate change. And he said that um, in 1985 and 1986, they were harvesting their Riesling in the last week of March. Now, this is in Australia. Right. It's down under. And he says since that time, they've been harvesting at least – there's a three-week difference now, and he puts that difference now. Uh, he says it's because of climate change. Yeah, yeah. And we and, anecdotally uh, we see that here, right? I mean, you just yeah. mentioned that. And he's he's growing Riesling, and it's getting so hot there that before the grapes are ready, the vines are dropping their leaves. Oh, it's so hot and it's so dry. 
Wow. So what happens then is the, the grapes get sunburned because they're exposed to the <sighs> correct sun. And then that brings out some um, some unpleasant char- characteristics in the wine that, that, yeah. that they don't like. Yeah. So they're really battling, you know, hard <laughs> trying to figure out how to, you know, what to do. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's almost like, hey, we're not going to be able to go Riesling here anymore. Yep. Yeah, or you're down. I mean, I was chuckling. If you hear me chuckling, I'm like, or you're down to like hand picking berries. You know, you're hand picking the grapes, and there are winer, there are vintners that do that. They do do that, but well, they do that, and uh, that's done quite frequently in Germany. We should talk yeah. about that sometime. How they harvest the wines in the it, that's a whole some different of the German wine regions. Yeah, the different technique, but that think of the labor involved in that. Yeah, and then drives up the cost. Um. And, and sand labor, you know, going back to the Alexander Valley picture that I posted on Twitter, if you look at that photo, if you look at the front of that vineyard and you look off, it, it's going off up towards um, uh, Cloverdale. That says the, the, the valley kind of dog legs and starts heading north. Um, just about all of that valley vineyard right there along the riverbed is all machine harvested. And uh, the, the, the landscape, as far as humans versus machines, has changed so dramatically over the past five, six years. That used to all be, uh, you see people out there, you know, the cars parking on the side of the road and, and doing hand harvesting. That's all been um, retrellised and replanted, and it's harvested by machine yeah, now. Mechanically, yep. yep. And what the machine does is it goes to the vineyard and it just shakes the heck out of the limbs of the vine and the grapes just say okay i give up i'm coming off <laughs> that's what happened I, I'm, I mean i'm laughing at the fact that's true it's exactly what they're doing is um you know shaking the shaking it apart so it's it's uh it's not as far as quality you're not going to get the highest quality because you're collecting everything that'll fall off versus um you know, if you're hand harvesting, the guys and the gals are going through the vineyard and they're cutting uh, each individual and they're like picking and they're, oh, that's not a good bunch. I'm going to leave that. So it's a, there's a lot more selection. And all there's also there's selection when you get to the winery because um, they're able to like select the berries at that point. Now, you mentioned the 2014 Brunello vintage yep. in that article, Bill. I want to just circle all the way to the very, very bottom. And... Um, for our listeners, Brunello is, um, if you will, it's a high-end Sangiovese um, from a, a region in Tuscany in Italy. And um, Brunello's, uh, it's a certain uh, biotype of Sangiovese that's only grown in Montalcino and the areas around Montalcino, and it's its own appellation. Uh, one of the things that she mentions, um, this article is written by Karen O'Keefe, she's a noted Italian author. And um, at the very end, the last paragraph, and we, we hit on this last, uh, our last podcast, we were talking about, oh, every vintage is a great vintage. <laughs> it's <Remember> true. <laughs> so she has at the very end, she says, and, and basically at the very beginning, she says, the 2014 Brunello vintage overcomes difficult conditions. <laughs> you could look at that two ways. You could go, yeah, things are difficult, but seems like it was pretty good. Too much rain, cool temperatures hurt the 2014 vintage, while the, re- the 2013 reservas will age nicely. 
So getting back to this paragraph at the very end, she says a word of caution. <laughs> 2014 is definitely a buyer beware vintage. Yeah. And I won't go any further, but yeah. hey, there's hey, always this thing with vendors. They go, well, you know, it was a tough vintage, but we are so careful in how we take care of our vines. Our terrain has a very specific, uh, you know, we're in a super special microclimate. We weren't that impacted. All of these things can and could be true. But in general, if you're looking to buy wines from the 2014 vintage, and this isn't, this doesn't, this is just not Brunello wines. If you're looking at 2014 wines from regions all across Europe, you have to be a little bit more selective because the wines they're lean yeah as the article says are. yeah as the article says <laughs> but thanks to the expertise of, of the most dedicated producers there's some lovely brunellos from this just released vintage yeah. <laughs> and i think further in the article kind of to your point it's like good results depend almost entirely on the producers <laughs> Yeah. So it's yeah. like, yeah, and buyer beware. Uh, you know, I, I was and reading I could, this and I'm like, oh, the... <laughs> you better find you better find somebody you know is reputable, or you're going to have a crappy bottle of wine. That's what I took away from that article. And I, I can, I can speak with authority on this because I, I mean, I taste all the new vintages as they come out year in, year out, yeah. and um, I've, I've been fortunate enough to taste a lot of the 14s alongside the 13s and alongside the 15s, and. Um, you know, I've, I've worked for a, a small, uh, a short period of time with the retailer here uh, in town who's no longer here, uh, a good friend of both of ours. And I'll, I'll never forget him saying um, about the 2011 vintage in Napa. that year when we had a, um, a bunch of late rains and probably not the best year to get red wines from Napa, Napa Valley. And I remember him saying, or, or actually from anywhere, and he said, uh, he goes, yeah, I'm not buying any. Um, I'm not buying any 2011 uh, uh, Napa cabs. And at a, at the time, I was thinking, well, how could you? Even how could that? you say that without yeah, exactly. tasting the wines? You don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. You have no idea, man. You're just like making a blanket <laughs> statement, and you're like totally you're uh, dissing the whole entire vintage. Yeah. But you know, I mean, if you want to be black and white like that, you can to a certain point. You really can. And um, I was at the. Um, I was at the uh, Great Wines of Italy tasting yesterday uh, that's uh, sponsored by uh, or put put on by uh, James Suckling, who's a, a, a noted Italian um, uh, wine writer. And uh, well, you asked me earlier, Bill, I'll tell you, it was like a Brunello and Barolo tasting with a few other smatterings of some other producers in there also rock concert. Oh, really? I mean, it was good then. It was great. It was great. Yeah. But you can't really, I can't taste wines in that environment. The line wow. to, to taste the, to, the Guadalajara Antonori's uh, Bulgari red. Yeah. Was 30 deep. Oh, come on. And that's just, yeah, <laughs> but, I, I'm so walking out. I'm walking out at that juncture, and, and no disrespect to the winery, the event. It's just it 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 just it's. I don't. For me, it becomes very hard to like discern anything. Um, 
so so um, uh, real circling back real quick to 14 I did try a pretty fantastic wine there um, called Sergio Zingarelli yeah. and it's a Chianti Classico from that horrible horrible uh, extremely excuse me extremely <laughs> difficult 2014 vintage okay. uh, Grand Selezioni <laughs> I'm telling you I've chased a lot of Chianti man that's probably the best bottle of Chianti I've tried in years wow well kind of to the point of that article it's <laughs> down to the producer right yeah, it was incredible. Hmm. <laughs> it's like wow. I looked and it's like this is 2014, really? Wow. It's That's like a hundred dollar bottle, but yeah. <laughs> I mean, I say that with kind of a sigh, but it, you know, you gotta, you, I, I, you know, if it's one of the best things you've ever tasted, and tasted, I imagine that you know that price point it might command that price point. I wasn't able to taste any of the glyphosate in it. I'm not. Sh- I'm not sure if it had any or not. I wasn't able to. I was. Trying. I'm, I'm not sure what that glyphosate. <laughs> I don't is, know. So. Yeah, I posted an article that um, somebody had done a uh, had done some an analysis on beer and wine, and most of the top brands, many of the popular top brands of beer, and some of the big wineries that you've heard of all have glyphosate in it. Um, Coors Light, Miller Light, um, Sierra Nevada, uh, that list go Heineken. I all had uh, some level of glycosphate in it. And then what? Barefoot Cellars, um, Fry, and Inkari. Inkari all had it as well. So you know, I you know, it's a it's a very popular herbicide. So I think you know you expect that it's going to get um, into many products. It's just it, it. It's an effective. It's an effective herbicide, so people use it. I don't. I, I, it wasn't surprising to me that it was in it. I think one of the interesting things about this article that it highlights is the downstream effect of using these types of things in the products that you you know in the in the agricultural products that you grow. You know, we often don't think about those those things, but whatever you put in the field, it's going to manifest itself through. Um, the things that you grow and then it's going to continue all through you know the production and I know that's evident in everything but it's it's interesting to see um, how prevalent it is and it was a, you know it was like they tested 20 things and 19 of them all had all had it in it so and none of, none of those producers are out saying oh we're organic or you know biodynamic or you know not touting themselves as not having it it's just it I, again, just sort of an awareness that yeah, that stuff's out there and it's out there in more places and you in more of your food than you think. Well, I I beg to differ with you. One of the one of those producers is touting uh, their stewardship of the land, and that's Frey Vineyards. I was going to say some fried, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that is they, true. They don't use herbicides. They Supposedly. don't use uh, any trace amounts of uh, glyphosate and. Uh, I mean, they just they they have it for years. It's a it's that's, that's their gig. Is that is true. Winery. I forgot about that. I will say, I, I will say that um, the, the California Office of Environmental Health Hazards Assessments. You know, they have a, you know, they've said that there's no significant risk of uh, risk level. <laughs> the, there's uh, parameters that are set uh, as far as the amounts that are allowed in these products, and. 
these levels that they're citing are extreme. They're not anywhere near what they'd have to, you'd have to drink. Basically, I'm trying to look here. It says, uh, uh, assuming the greatest value reported 51.4 parts per billion is correct, a 125 pound adult, that'd have to be a woman, would have to consume 308 gallons of wine per day, every day for life, to reach the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's exposure limit for uh, glyphosate. So, I mean... Yeah, it's in there, but it's like we're talking trace, 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 trace amounts. And if it if it's in your beer and it's in, if it's in your wine, it's in your cereal. Oh, it's in everything. It's in your milk. Yeah. It's in it's in your water. Yeah. It's it's in everything. Yeah. That's because, kind of my point. Like you said. Yeah, that's kind of my point. Yeah. It's just like this stuff is in our environment and you are consuming it. And, you know, Fry Vineyards in their defense, they may not use this stuff. But their 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 facility might be used. Um, you know, often winemakers will use their facility to contract make wine, so it could get you know the trace amounts could show up there. There could be overspray from um, other vineyards next to them that are using it. That can happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it could get into the soil and be in the aquifer, and the the grapes might be drinking that water, so to speak. So there's a lot of ways that it can get in um, into the food supply. Um, and you see this all the time with various, you know, pick up a package and look for the allergen, you know, any allergens around nuts or any of that stuff. You know, you see that. You know, I mean, almost all the food packaging I pick up, you know, has some allergy warning, you know, made made in a facility that has peanuts or made in a facility that uses these kind of nuts or some other allergen. Um, yep. So it... it it's interesting and I think the last thing is you're absolutely right in terms of the quantity the the people that have successfully had litigation against the um, Monsanto around this you know they were effectively immersed in that chemical yeah Um, you know high high levels driving around on tractors yep Um, really high level exposure or in the fact that they were like coated in it so you know it's an industrial chemical it is an herbicide you know it's designed to kill things that grow um, and so, you know, it, I makes sense to me just on a surface level that, you know, there, it could be, it could, you know, at high levels of concentration, it might be bad for you. <laughs> um, um, that's, that's in independent of the company knowing that and then them choosing, um, you know, I don't know Bill. it'd be hard. I like wine, but it'd be hard for me to drink 308 gallons a day. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, a lot of these formulas too, you start working it out and it's, you know, oh, oh, we, we misstated now that we know this information, actually a gallon. I'd say 308 gallons would be probably bad for me, even if it didn't have no any. kidding. A day? That's like, do you remember back when I was growing up, they had saccharin, it was at saccharin or something, they had fed a mouse and it got cancer. And if yeah. you look at the amount of saccharin it, it was eating, like that would, it would kill you if you ate that, like just from eating it, not, had nothing to do with the chemicals, just a quantity of eating it. It was like a pound of saccharin a day, something that extreme. And it's like, if you eat anything in that quantity every day, it's going to cause you a problem. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, some of it doesn't make sense. Um, 
Yeah, well, you know, you you got you got to get those clicks, man. <laughs> oh heck yeah! Well, there's definitely that. There's definitely that. No doubt, clickbait so, is. You a know, good you thing. get those clicks. You put that Corona has uh, weed killer in it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, well, let's just fast forward that out to the current advertising around corn syrup. Yes. It is effective. You know how I know? They are hammering that commercial. I'm seeing that commercial everywhere now. Yeah. I mean, it's um, we've been watching a lot of basketball, and wow, holy smokes, it's like on every game. You know, them shouting their recipes. And I find it funny. It's like, well, it's made with rice. Well, yeah, it's made with rice syrup. <laughs> it's not corn syrup. It's rice syrup. Yeah, it's good stuff. It's good stuff. Well, let's uh, let's wrap it up, man. Yeah. Anything you're, uh, anything you're drinking you want to share? Um... You know what I had? Um, I mean, you you went and tasted yesterday. That's yeah. I tasted I tasted some great wines. I'm I'm thinking about just do like a little quick post on some of the wines because it was kind of a who's who's list of uh, wines at that tasting. Uh, But but one wine, um, as I said, there was lots of uh, Barolo and there was lots of Brunello. Actually, there was one room that was just uh, devoted to Brunello. And uh, when I went last year, I did the Brunello thing. So uh, there was really no need for me to go to that. But um, I did taste some really good Barolos. Um, the wine that stood out, if I had to pick one wine that stood out, is from a region that I'm not a real big fan of. Um, but it's from uh, it's from the region of, uh, it's a, a place in Tuscany called Bulgari. That's B-O-L-G-H. E-R-I, Bulgari. Uh-huh. And um, this winery, it's called uh, Gratamaco. Gratamaco. I don't know what that means. But it's a Bulgari uh, Superiore. It's a super Tuscan. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that term? Yep. Okay. For our listeners, super Tuscan is a category that was uh, essentially invented back in the 80s. And uh, the Italians are sticklers for rules. At least they're sticklers for writing down rules, maybe not following them. <laughs> not rules are for the guidance the of the commander. It's just guidance. <laughs> we should write it down. Rule, rules are merely suggestions. Yes. It's the Italian way. <laughs> so, know, you, um, should, you should try. Back, you should try back to in make the, the day, um, uh, when they were making Chianti wines, the Chianti wines were so weak, and they're trying to keep up with the the better wines were made in the in the rest of the world, the rest of the modern world. So they started adding um, grapes that had a little bit more ump and a little bit more tan, a little bit more power, i.e., Cabernet and Merlot. Yeah. So they started planting these varieties and adding them to Chianti. Non-indigenous. Chianti Classical Association said, "Hey." That's not part of the blend. You can't be putting these grapes yeah. in. So we had some uh, some uh, Mavericks. They said, well, that's what makes my wine really good, and people like it. So I'm just going to go ahead and make the wine. I'm not going to be a part of your consortium anymore. And that's how Super Tuscans got started. And they started adding more and more Cabernet. Um, this The winery, uh, uh, Gradamaco, is um, – Owned by, um, or it was owned, it was started by um, 
Maleti uh, Cavallari. And he was looking for a place um, in the hills to hang out with his wife. He liked to fish. He was just looking for a place around the fishing village. And uh, he ended up buying this abandoned farmhouse that sits up on like a little plain, a hill, uh, and overlooks the ocean. And this is a, the Tyrrhenian Sea, the um, Mediterranean Sea. And he planted some Cabernet there to complement what was already planted there. And um, it kind of took off. And this is in the uh, this is in the early 80s. So the only other winery that was there at the time, I believe, was um, Sasakaya. Huh. And uh, that's another uh, super Tuscan wine. All of these wines like Sasakaya, you know, they sell for hundreds of dollars a bottle these days. But um, the property is now owned by um, the, the Tippa um, Bertarelli family. And as you recall from uh, last week, I was talking about their Koli Masari uh, wine. So they also own this property. Right. There's 67 acres there. It's, um, as I said, it's located on the hill and it's, it's between Castagneto, Carducci, and uh, Bulgari. And it's at a, a 330 foot um, um, altitude as far as sea level. Uh, you can see the ocean from the property. So it's not that far. I think maybe like 10 miles. Uh, so it gets the sea breeze and then it gets the coolness that comes from the hills. The soils are uh, calcareous, uh, sandstone, uh, marl and clay, probably not unlike something you see here in California. Huh. The, the vines average about 24, 24 years of age and they're hand harvested. The wine spends uh, 21 months in French oak and they, um, they uh, ferment the wine in um, <clears throat> these big uh, cone-shaped uh, open um, um, tanks and uh, they, you know, uh, it's uh, done kind of old school. Uh, so it's 65% Cabernet, 20% Merlot, and 15% Sangiovese. And uh, they don't make a whole bunch of it. Uh, 4,166 cases are produced. It's a kind of, uh, it's not that exciting a label. Uh, it just says uh, the name of the winery and it says Bulgari Superiore. I'll tell you, if you're looking for this wine, they make a couple of um they also make a Bulgari Rosso, which is a little less expensive, so um, you don't want to confuse them and get the other one. Um, uh, on the nose, black cherries, uh, currants, you get that Cabernet nose. Uh, it's got a little garrique, and garrique for me is like that um, uh, thyme, rosemary, lavender type of blend that you get in the hillsides. That's right. on there in the nose, for me anyway. Uh, cedar box which is the wood that you get from um, the French oak. And on the attack on the palate when you put it in your mouth, it's really strong. It's very distinctive. But the sensation is really one of softness and silkiness. And it's got a really nice long finish. By far the best wine I tried of all the wines that I tried. I tried a bunch of wines yesterday. Yeah. That was uh, that was the winner. Uh, I don't know what that wine costs do you do you know what it costs bro? no i have no idea let's take a look real quick but that's my uh that's my wine uh that's my wine of the wine of the week. wine of the week and uh i haven't really tried any it's been so darn busy with the flood and everything i've just been ha happy to get home safely <laughs> I know it's been. It's been an added. It added like. Um, it added because we were down to the one road. It added a significant amount of time to my commute. 
Um, yeah. I mean, it's taken like 20, 20 extra minutes to kind of get out of town last couple of days. But um, um, I, I don't, I don't have anything to talk about in terms of um, anything that I've tried new and noteworthy. Um, I did go out last weekend to try to uh, grab another one of the special release IPAs that happened, but uh, it they were gone. It was out. It was not available. I couldn't didn't seem it. I went to go try to get some big chicken. Um, ah, not hey, uh, I. You you mentioned the chicken to me, uh, the big chicken to yeah. me, and I ran into it's so funny. I ran into uh, a buddy of mine from way back. I saw him. He works oh, for that work winery now. He, he works for <laughs> Hen House. Yeah. So works for Hen House. So yeah, I'm, I got I got a hookup now. Yeah, man, that's so good. I'm in there. <laughs> that's good. There, uh, it, it's interesting to go to that tasting room because it it um, the um, they're getting a lot of it 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 just looks like they've got a lot of local business happening, like a lot of local people. Um, and it's good. It's not sort of the traditional people, you know, it didn't look like there were a lot of tourists in there. Let me say it that way. Um, and that was good. It's good. And I think it's good because that means the local community is supporting the, that brewery and that, you know, that means that they're, um, um, you know, they're making a product that's, um, that's working that's really good hey um i dug up a price this wine is not out yet what uh it's it's out but it's it's not out in full force yeah and i found a couple of places that have it it's gonna go for around 100 bucks a bottle on release i mean but you'd expect that from yeah from that one right i mean yeah i I mean it's that area is like that whole area of bulgari and marema that's that's like the jet setters area people that go there you know, I haven't been to that area yet. I kind of passed it up last time I was in Italy. Yeah. But people that go to that area, you go there to to eat good food and drink expensive wine. Yeah, that's that's why you're going there. So yeah, that's that's like a little luxury, little luxe, little luxe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, thanks everyone for uh, listening. Really appreciate it. And uh, Bill. How do they reach us? You can uh, you can tweet uh, at vino at twitter.com slash vino one oh one net. Um, you can mail us at info at vino one oh one or you can always post a um, review or a comment on our blog. Please do. All right. Please do. Hey, I, I see I see a little sun out there. I'm gonna go outside now. Exactly. <laughs> cheers. And on that note, cheers. Cheers everyone. Bye.